0: section 11 of the lives of the queens of england volume 8 by agnes and elizabeth strickland this librivox recording is in the public domain henrietta maria chapter 3 part 3 to give the personal history of charles I, during the four years through which he suffered and struggled after his sad separation from the partner of his heart would far exceed our limits The plan of this biography of his queen must be the exact reverse of the histories of his reign, which cleave to Charles, and scarcely condescend to note what became of Henrietta. On the contrary, we have but given glimpses, through the loopholes of her correspondence, of the long series of battles, lost or won, persecutions and imprisonments, which led her monarch to a violent death. Charles I had escaped more than once from his enemies, yet nothing could induce him to show to the French the piteous and degrading sight of a king of Great Britain as a suppliant in France. It has been noted that it was his conviction, from an early period in the struggle, that the rebels meant to shed his blood. Yet he preferred enduring the worst cruelties that they could find in their hearts to inflict on him, rather than abandon his country. Charles was right. Yet his daily life in England presented few enviable moments. When all was done that man could do, and all was done in vain. He passed his time either as a fugitive or a prisoner. One of his old cavaliers has described him, after the Battle of Naseby, wandering without a place where to rest his head. Often he dined, at a very poor man's house, on the charity of one of his lowliest subjects, who perhaps needed money more than the Scotch Calvinists who sold him to his enemies. Again, the observation is forced upon us that never was a Stuart betrayed by one of the lower classes. Sometimes the unfortunate monarch starved. Sometimes the entry in the journal is dinner in the field. No dinner is the entry for several successive days. Another, Sunday, no dinner, separate Worcester, a cruel day. The King himself, writing to Nicholas, mentions receiving a letter from the Queen when marching over Broadway Hills in Worcestershire. He mentions it as if he were too much harassed in mind and body to note well its contents. This seems to have been the march mentioned in the Iter Carolinum as the Long March that lasted from six in the morning till midnight. Once it is noted that his majesty lay in the field all night at Bokenock down. Again, his majesty had his meat and drink, dressed at a very poor widow's. Sir Henry Slingsby declares that when the king and his tired attendants were wandering among the mountains of Wales, he was glad to sup on a pullet and some cheese. The good wife who ministered to his wants, having but one cheese, and the king's attendants being importunate in their hunger. She came in and carried it off from the royal table. Charles was too true a soldier to repine at this incident, he was glad that his faithful followers had withal to satisfy their famine, though with homely viands. For, said he, my rebel subjects have not left enough from my revenue to keep us from starving. One Rosewell, a dissenting minister, when a boy, by accident beheld the fugitive king, sitting with his attendants, resting under the shelter of a tree in a lonely field. The canopy was not very costly, but from the demeanor of the monarch, The beholder received the most reverential idea of his majesty. Rosewell had been bred an enemy, yet he did not find majesty, a jest divested of its externals. He never forgot the personal elegance, the manly beauty of Charles. The grace reflected from a highly cultivated mind, which gave him as kingly an air under one of England's broad oaks as beneath a golden canopy at Whitehall. Often the king rode hard through the night and saw the break of day, which only recalled the wearied fugitive to the anxious cares of a retreat or a pursuit. Once, late in the evening, he dismissed some loyal gentlemen to their homes with these pathetic words, "'Gentlemen, go you and take your rest. You have houses and homes and beds to lodge in, and families to love and live with, but I have none. My horse is waiting for me to travel all night.' The king often compared himself, in the words of the psalmist, to a partridge hunted on the mountains. In the beautiful and touching memorial of his afflictions, he has noted himself not only as destitute of the common necessaries of life, but as bereaved of his wife, his children, and his friends. But, said he, as God has given me afflictions to exercise my patience, so hath he given me patience to bear my afflictions. Such was the life led by the much-tried monarch, towards the conclusion of the war. Wearied of this life of homeless sufferings and perils, the king threw himself on the generosity of the Scotch Covenanters. They sold him to the English commons. It was represented to him that he might yet escape further into Scotland. He replied with a mournful smile, I think it were more respectable to go with those who have bought me than stay with those who have sold me. He added, I am ashamed that my price was so much higher than my saviour's if charles had taken refuge among the highlanders in the loyal districts scotland had never groaned under the bitter reproach of this transaction there was little to choose between the honour of the covenanters and the roundheads the roundhead army dragged their king a prisoner in their marches until he finally rested at hampton court where he had a short breathing time, while the army and commons manifested some jealousy which should possess him. Here Cromwell paid deceitful court to him, but it is evident from every word the king said to his real friends, or wrote in the Icon Basilicu, that he looked forward to nothing but a violent death. Such were his intimations in the last interview he had with Sir Richard and Lady Fanshawe. Oh, the beautiful, the touching memorials which that admirable woman has left of her conjugal love to the noblest of mankind, her own beloved Cavalier, Sir Richard Fanshawe. Next to her husband, her suffering monarch and his queen were the objects of Lady Fanshawe's affection and veneration. She risked and suffered much to carry to the queen a message from King Charles. An interview occurred between him, Sir Richard and Lady Fanshawe, which few can read, in her words of sweet simplicity, without being moved. It was during the King's melancholy sojourn at Hampton Court, in the autumn of 1647. The reader must be reminded that the writer was the wife and daughter of the King's familiar friends, with whom he had been intimate from his youth upwards. I went three times to pay my duty to his majesty, both as I was the daughter of his servant and the wife of his servant. The last time I ever saw him, I could not refrain from weeping. He kissed me when we took our leave of him, and I, with streaming eyes, prayed aloud to God to preserve his majesty with a long and happy life. The king patted me on the cheek and said impressively, child if god willeth it shall be so but you and i must submit to god's will and you know what hands i am in then turning to my husband sir richard Fanshawe, he said be sure dick to tell my son all i have said and deliver these letters to my wife i pray god to bless her and preserve her and all will be well then taking my husband in his arms he said thou hast ever been an honest man I hope God will bless thee and make thee a happy servant to my son. Thus did we part from that benign light, which was extinguished soon after, to the grief of all Christians not forsaken of their God. During the detention of the king at Carisbrook Castle in the year 1648, a strong reaction had taken place in his behalf among all ranks and conditions of his people, who after six years of war, famine and enormous taxation, had woefully drawn comparisons between the economical expenditure of their king and that of the rapacious Democrats. The whole of Charles I's annual expenditure, reckoning even the disputed item of ship money, was within one annual million of pounds. The expenditure voted by Parliament to oppose him could not have been less than ten millions annually. The price of wheat during three years of the struggle amounted to the famine price of four pounds per quarter. The intense sufferings of the poor may be imagined when the relative value of money is calculated. Moreover, the kings of Merry England, in the olden time, only required their dues from men who had something. The grand secret how to wring money from men who were worth nothing but the clothes they wore and the food they consumed, how to pinch a tax out of the poor man's candle, his modicum of salt, his brewing of malt, the leather that kept his feet from the cold, was first discovered by the political economists of the Roundhead Parliament. Neither the king, the nobles, the bishops of England, instituted the excise taxes. Revolutionists did this deed. And what was far worse than their abstraction of the enormous masses of money they gained, these vexatious exactions created numberless new crimes. It was a virtuous action in the reign of Charles I, for an industrious cottager to make her own candles, or for her husband, to malt and brew his own barley. Under the commonwealth, and still more in the protectorate, it subjected them to the inquisitorial inspections from a new race of petty placemen, and converted good into evil, household duties into crimes. The king, the ancient nobility, and the bishops were not the only victims of the roundheads, but the poor suffered with them in a manner never before experienced." it will scarcely excite wonder that towards the close of the year 1648, the whole population, excepting those who were sharing among themselves, the produce of this taxation should be extremely desirous of peace. But when a majority in the House of Commons was found in favor of pacification with the King, Cromwell sent Colonel Pride with a body of troopers who seized those members of Parliament as they came into the House who voted for peace and thrust them into a dungeon of the ancient palace of Westminster called Hell. Thus were 40 of them incarcerated and 160 expelled. Whenever a majority was found in favor of the king, the same violence was repeated. Two alarming revolts in favor of the king, one in London and the other in its vicinity, had just been crushed with unsparing bloodshed. Such was the state of the metropolis when Charles I was dragged to die in it. The first movement towards the accomplishment of this tragedy took place November 30th, 1648. The king was seated at dinner in the hall of Carisbrook Castle, where, according to the ancient customs of an English monarch, the public were permitted to see him at meals. On that fatal day, a cadaverous-looking gaunt man, whose military vocation was indicated by his spanner or belt and scarf, entered and placing himself opposite to his majesty, continued to regard him in grim funereal silence all dinner time. The king's few faithful servants, who were waiting on him, whispered together that he certainly was one of the ill spirits of the army. After the king rose from table, one of his attendants broke the ominous silence of the gaunt stranger by asking him to eat. After the wretch had fed, he vouchsafed to growl out, as if he had indeed been an evil spirit. I am come to fetch away to tonight. Hammond was the governor, who considered himself responsible for the king's safety, to the House of Commons, and was therefore obnoxious to the army, The grim man was that Colonel Isaac Ewer, whose name appears on the king's death warrant. The king's faithful servants, among others a gallant cavalier, called Ned Cook, entreated him to fly, telling him a boat was ready on the beach. The king, who knew not the open warfare between the army and the house of commons, said, I have passed my word to Hammond and the house. I will not be the first to break my promise. Escape, in fact, was scarcely possible. Two regiments were landing from Southampton, of which the grim colonel had been the precursor. A cordon of soldiers encircled Carisbrook Castle as night drew on. At daybreak, there was a loud knocking at the outer door of the royal chamber. The Duke of Richmond, the King's attached kinsman who slept there, rose and asked who was there. Officers with a message from the army was the answer. Several round-head officers rushed in and abruptly told the king they came to remove him. To what place? asked the king. To the castle, answered Colonel Cobbett. The castle is no castle, replied the king. I am prepared for any castle, but tell me the name. Hurst Castle was the answer. Indeed, you could not have named a worse. Hurst Castle was a desolate blockhouse projecting into the sea, at high tides scarcely connected with the Isle of Wight. The king's coach was drawn out, he entered it. Major Rolfe, one of the garrison at Carrisbrook, suspected of tampering with the king's life, endeavored to follow him. The king placed his foot to hinder his entrance, and pushed the armed ruffian back, saying very coolly, "'Go you out, we are not yet come to that.' He called his grooms of the chamber, Harrington, the author of the Oceana, who had been placed about him by the Parliament, and his own faithful Herbert. The ruffian whom he had repulsed, mounted the king's lead horse, and rode by the side of the carriage, abusing him all the way. The king amused himself by making Herbert and Harrington guess to what place they were going. Nothing could be more dismal than Hearst Castle. This lonesome spot, jutting out into the ocean, and severed from all concern with human life, seemed a suitable scene for some murder, such as the king had received intelligence was meditating against him. The room, or rather den, in which he was immured, was so dark that candles were needed at noonday. Nevertheless, the king was not ill-treated by Cobbett, who reproved and displaced the original commander of the blockhouse for some blustering insolence at his majesty's first arrival. The deprivation felt most by Charles was the loss of the accomplished Harrington, in whose literary conversation he exceedingly delighted. The king's spirits had begun to droop with the monotony of this doleful, seagirt fortress, when just three weeks after his arrival, he was startled from his sleep by the rattling fall of the drawbridge. The faithful Herbert, now the solitary attendant of his royal master, stole forth to learn his fate. Whilst the King had been incarcerated at Hurst Castle, the last struggle between the Parliament and the army had taken place. The presence of the intended victim was needed and Major Harrison was sent for him. The King had been warned against this man who had talked in a wild way of assassinating him. Harrison seems to have been insane in the faculty of destructiveness. He had been bred a butcher by trade, and was remarkable for the homicides he had committed, since he had changed his vocation of killing beasts. His retribution had, however, already commenced, and he at times fancied that he was attended by a fearful specter, and dogged by following fiends. It was soon found that the errand of this homicide was to take the king to Windsor Castle charles who could not imagine that any regicide was likely to be perpetrated in his ancient regal fortress was glad to exchange the obscure den in which he was immured for such a dwelling on the road thither at winchester and at every considerable town his people of england came forth and invoked blessings on his royal head and prayed aloud for his safety despite of the terrors of his military escort Tears, which his own misfortunes could not draw from his eyes, were seen on these occasions. Once he recognized a loyal gentleman in deep mourning for Sir Charles Lucas, who, with his gallant friend, Lyle, had been executed by the command of Ayrton, in defiance of the terms of capitulation at the recent surrender of Colchester, the king recognized the relative of his faithful friend. He murmured to himself the names of Lyle and Lucas, and then burst into a passion of tears. The king passed one month at his royal castle in comparative serenity of mind. He heard from time to time of the preparation of a court to try him, but the absurdity of an attempt at legality after the violence offered to the freedom of the House of Commons appeared preposterous to common sense. Murder, the king expected, but not the farce of judicature. His heart yearned towards his wife and children. He spoke of them incessantly, and this was made a crime by the base hireling press. Cromwell's licenser or censor of the public press, for he had provided himself with such a functionary whose office has been little known either before or since in Great Britain. Thus speaks of the captive monarch. The king is cunningly merry, though he hears of the parliament's proceedings against him. He asked one who came from London how his young princess did. He was answered that the princess Elizabeth was very melancholy. The king answered, and well she may be when she hears the death of her old father is coming too. We find his discourse very effeminate, talking much of women. Thus were the domestic affections of the king, discussed by a hireling who affected to cater news for the army. While the king remained at Windsor, vast masses of military were drawn nearer and nearer to the metropolis, and in and about it, till as the Venetian ambassador wrote, London seemed as if it were besieged, within and without. The troopers with which it swarmed were quartered and stabled in, Westminster Abbey and other desecrated places of worship, where they duly exercised their destructiveness in their hours of recreation. When the iron yoke of military control was firmly fitted on the necks of the people, Cromwell, the chief terrorist, thought the time was fit for the presence of the captive king on the scene, He was sent for to London, January 15th, 1648-49, to old style. As the king left Windsor Castle, his kinsman, the Duke of Hamilton, who was imprisoned there, had by bribes and tears, prevailed on his jailers to let him see his king once more. He was accordingly brought out by his guards, and the party intercepted the king in his path. Hamilton flung himself on his knees before him, with the passionate exclamation of, my dear, dear master. These were the only words he could utter. I have indeed been a dear master to you, replied the king, with pathetic emphasis, while he embraced his kinsman for the last time. The king was guarded to London by Colonel Harrison and a large squadron of troopers, who carried loaded pistols pointed at his carriage. He was brought to St. James's palace, where for the first time, he was entirely deprived of the usages of royalty, His attendants were dispersed, and he was left alone with his faithful Herbert, who fortunately was sufficiently literary to be the historian of his master's progress to his untimely tomb. Meantime, the councils of his persecutors were full of dissension and uncertainty. Further violent expulsions took place, from the intimidated remnant who called themselves the House of Commons, until only 69 members remained who thought themselves fitted for the task of king killing. These were chiefly officers in the army, yet even of these, many found themselves mistaken in regard to the hardness of their hearts when they saw their king face to face and heard him speak. Many of the persons summoned as judges were neither members of parliament nor even lawyers. At last, after several consultations in the painted chamber, it was agreed that while the tribunal sat, the king was to be imprisoned in Sir Robert Cotton's house which was part of the ancient structure of Edward the Confessor's palace. That the chamber next the study, in Cotton House, be the king's bedroom, and the chamber before it be his dining room. That a guard of thirty officers and choice men be placed above stairs, and that two of them be always in his bedchamber, and other guards at all the avenues. That the king be brought to his trial, the lower way into Westminster Hall, guarded by the body of halberdiers guards to be placed, not only in and about Westminster Hall, but on the leads and at all windows, of the adjoining houses that look towards the hall, that there be troopers on horseback, all without the hall, and that all back doors, from the place called Hell, be stopped up. The regicide junta was supported by ten companies of foot and squadrons of horse, and yet seemed to sit in terror. They met privately in the painted chamber, January 20th, where they consulted how they were to answer the king's certain objections to their authority. At last Cromwell's purple face was seen to turn very pale. He ran to the window where he saw the king advancing between two ranks of soldiers from Cotton House. "'Here he is! Here he is!' exclaimed he with great animation." The hour of the great affair approaches. Decide speedily what answer you will give him, for he will immediately ask by what authority you pretend to judge him. A deep silence ensued, which was broken by the jocose destructive, Harry Martin, who it is supposed as a sneer, uttered, In the name of the Commons assembled in Parliament, and of all the good people of England, the mere sight of the scanty numbers of the commons, with the army at the door, choking every avenue of Westminster Hall, offered forcible answers to the illegality of this arraignment, but brute force is not obliged to be logical. The procession of the regicides then took their way to Westminster Hall with sword and mace. Bradshaw, a sergeant at law of no practice, was their president. As he was in some terror of an inbreak of the people, He had caused his high-crowned Puritan hat to be lined with iron, a precaution which seems to have been taken by the rest of the lawyers, busy on this iniquitous work. When all was ready, and a large body of armed men were stationed on each side of the mock tribunal, the great gate of Westminster Hall was set open, and the populace rushed into the vacant spaces as spectators. Whilst the king was on his progress to Westminster Hall, his anxious people crowded as near to his person as possible, crying, God save your majesty. The soldiers beat them back with their partisans, and some of the men in Colonel Axtell's regiment raised the cry of, Justice! Justice! But as their commander was actively exerting himself among them, bestowing on them vigorous canings, the cry was somewhat ambiguous. This furious regicide, by the application of his cudgel, elicited subsequently a cry from a few individuals of, Execution, execution. The king was conducted under the guard of Colonel Hacker and thirty-two officers. His eyes were bright and powerful, his features calm and composed, but bore the traces of care and sorrow, which had scattered early snows on the curls, which clustered beneath his hat. As he advanced, he regarded the tribunal with a searching and severe regard, and without removing his hat, seated himself with his usual majesty of demeanor. Soon after, he rose and looked around him. His eyes earnestly dwelt on the armed force, which was but a continuation of the vast masses crowding the avenues of Westminster Hall and overpowering the people. With a quick eye and gesture, says a contemporary print, he turned himself about, noting not only those who were on each side of the court, but even the spectators who were in the hall. A poet who was present wrote on the spot the following lines, Descriptive of his mien at this awful crisis. Not so majestic on thy throne of state, on that but men, here God's own angels wait, in expectation whether hope or fear of life can move thee from thy kingly sphere. The arraignment was opened by one cook, an obscure lawyer, who when he read that the king was indicted in the name of the commons assembled and the people of England, his majesty interrupted him. The lawyer read on, the king then stretched out his cane and tapped him on the shoulder. Cook glared angrily round. At that instant, the gold head of the cane fell off and rolled on the floor. To such acute tension were the nerves of every one present wound up, but this petty incident made a great impression on the whole assembly, even on the august victim. But in every pause, in every interruption, the words, God save your majesty, God save the king, resounded from the spectators, as if meant for a choral response in the great drama. Angry requisitions for silence proceeded from the persons in power. Some vigorous bastinados were distributed, together with a due portion of kicks and cuffs, on the people by the military ruffians at the door, accompanied by threats of murderous treatment. Then the voice of the regicide advocate was heard, recommencing the arraignment. The ominous document, under terror of firelocks, pointed against protesting voices, was at last read through, with no other comment than a smile or two of contempt from the King. Bradshaw then demanded his answer in his plea of guilty or not guilty. As Cromwell had anticipated, the King denied the authority of the court, though not the power, observing in illustration, that there were many illegal powers as those of highwaymen and bandits. Likewise that the House of Commons had agreed to a treaty of peace with him when he was at Carisbrook, since which he had been hurried violently from place to place. "'There is Colonel Cobbett,' continued the king. "'Ask him whether it was not by force that he brought me from the Isle of Wight. Where are the just privileges of a House of Commons? Where are the lords? I see none present to constitute an assembly of parliament. And where is the king? Call you this bringing him to his parliament?' A dialogue of argument took place between the royal prisoner and Bradshaw, on the point of whether the monarchy of England was elective or not, and when the man of law was worsted in the dispute, he hastily adjourned the court. The king was taken from the hall amidst the irrepressible cries of, God bless your majesty, God save you from your enemies. Such was the only part that the people of England took in the trial, The king was brought before his self-appointed judges again and again, when similar dialogues took place between him and Bradshaw. Each day, however, brought an alarming desertion from the ranks of those who were supposed staunch to their bloody task. Twelve members on the first day refused to vote or assist in bringing the trial to a conclusion. Seven agitated days had passed away, during which the king had appeared thrice before his self-constituted judges, when on January 27th, alarmed by the defection of more than half of their numbers, the regicides resolved to doom their victim without further mockery of justice, and without producing their evidence. Indeed, this evidence chiefly consisted of the depositions of witnesses who saw the king perform acts of personal valor in the field, of his rallying broken regiments, and leading them up to the charge, thereby oft times redeeming the fortunes of a desperate field." His valor at Croptury Bridge was not forgotten, though turned against him. These details, however, only proved that, when devoted loyalists had arrayed themselves in his cause, the king had shared their perils to the utmost. With the determination of pronouncing the sentence on which they had previously agreed, the king for the fourth time was brought before the remnant of the regicide Junta. Bradshaw was robed in red, a circumstance from which the King drew an intimation of the conclusion of the scene. When the list of the members was read over, but 49 of them answered, with that miserable remnant, the trial proceeded. As the clerk read over the list, when the name of Fairfax occurred, a voice cried, not such a fool as to come here today. When the name of Cromwell was called, the voice exclaimed, Oliver Cromwell is a rogue and a traitor when Bradshaw uttered the words that the king was called to answer by the people before the Commons of England assembled in Parliament. It is false, answered the voice, not one quarter of them. General attention was now turned towards the gallery, for the voice was a female one, and issued from among a group of masked ladies there. A great disturbance took place, and many symptoms of resistance among the populace. At last, The oaths and execrations of the ruffian commander, Axtol, were heard above the uproar, mixed with gross epithets against women, to which he added the following command to his soldiers. Present your pieces. Fire. Fire into the box where she sits. A dead silence ensued, and a lady rose and quitted the gallery. She was Lady Fairfax. Her husband was still in power. The ruffian, Axtol, dared not harm her. This lofty protest against a public falsehood will remain, as a glorious instance of female courage, moral and personal, till history shall be no more. The earnest letter the Queen had written, entreating the Parliament and army to permit her to share her royal husband's prison, may be remembered. It is known that she wrote to Fairfax on the same subject. The conduct of the General's wife was probably the result of Henrietta's tender appeal. When this extraordinary interruption was suppressed by force of arms, another soon after arose among the regicides themselves. Bradshaw was proceeding to pass sentence on the king, who demanded the whole of the members of the House of Commons and the lords, who were in England, to be assembled to hear it, when one of the regicides, Colonel Downes, rose in tears and in great agitation exclaimed, "'Have we hearts of stone? Are we men?' You will ruin us and yourself too, whispered Mr. Colley, one of the members, pulling him down on one side while his friend, Colonel Walton, held him down on the other. If I were to die for it, said Colonel Downs, no matter. Colonel, exclaimed Cromwell, who sat just beneath him, turning suddenly round. Are you mad? Can't you sit still? No, answered Downs. I cannot and I will not sit still. Then rising, he declared that his conscience would not permit him to refuse the king's request. I move that we adjourn to deliberate. Bradshaw complied, probably lest Down's passionate remorse should become infectious, and the whole conclave retired. The adjournment only proved convenient for the torment of Cromwell's fury to be poured forth on the head of Downes, whom he brutally browbeat. He was, to use Down's own expression, full of storm." He wants to save his old master, exclaimed he, but make an end of it and return to your duty. Colonel Harvey supported Down's endeavors, but all they obtained was one half hour added to the king's agony. End of section 11.